Central Church. Uh, that, that's a good title, because that, that is what we're wanting. We're wanting, to be, we're wanting to be the supernatural ecclesia of God, the supernatural church. Uh, you know, we're living in a unique hour, as you know. I mean, there's things starting to break out in different places. And uh, man, I am optimistic and hopeful that yeah, I know it's coming. There is a, we're on a collision course with the move of God as a nation. Uh, if this isn't the, if this isn't, it's coming soon. And uh, we can just use this as a, allow this to be a token which strengthens and encourages our heart. And uh, so we're just going to go after that this, this weekend. Uh, want to, uh, just want to encourage you tonight, come back, bring some friends. If you've got friends that are, that are sick, uh, they need healing, they're discouraged, they just need a fresh touch from heaven, uh, drag them here tonight. Uh, if you've got to get someone else to help carry them, get, get a friend and help carry them in here. And uh, we're, we're going to just get around the presence and let God do what He's going to do. My brother's going to be ministering tonight. Uh, he is, he's in the back there. He's up from Florida. He's, he always looks forward to come to Iowa so he can wear his winter clothes. So he's got his, his twins shirt on. He was, he was bemoaning, telling me how much he's suffering down there. It was going to be seven here. It was going to be 91 there. So he said, yeah, I got a little bit of sunburn, I'm coming up there, and so I didn't feel bad for him at all, but uh, it is good to have him back in Iowa. All right, Matthew 16, I, my heart is full, I, there's so many things, I've really struggled with what, what to talk about this, in this opening session, uh, there's a number of things that I really feel like we need to look at this weekend, and then Christopher, he's got stuff the Lord's laid on his heart, uh, Let's jump in in Matthew 16. Let's, let's read here verse 1, Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him, speaking of Jesus, to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So we left them and departed. So the, there's a whole lot of signs that Jesus is talking about, but what I want to really center on is where Jesus, He, he alludes to weather patterns. He said, you, uh, when I was a little boy, my mom used to say it this way. So many of you have heard this saying, red at night, Sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor's warning. It's really saying in a poetic way what Jesus was communicating to us, that the, the, the look of the sky, uh, the, 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 the weather conditions at the certain times would be indicative of what's coming so that we could prepare. Uh, what he's talking about is meteorology. Meteorology is the science of weather conditions. And so here's the idea, you... You study present conditions, you become familiar with present conditions so that you can anticipate future ones and be prepared. That's why we turn on the weather guy. Now, my, my, I broke my wrist when I was a little boy, and it's about as accurate as most weathermen. I can tell when it's going <laughs> to rain as good as they can. Uh, I hate canceling church for weather because you just don't know. We finally pulled the plug the other night. Christopher was going to be up for this. I said, why don't you minister Wednesday night? And it, we start at 6.30 on Wednesdays, and I think it was at 4 we finally pulled the plug. I called Christopher and said, I, I'm sorry, man, i got to pull the plug. He said, well, I 
just got off the driveway a few moments ago. He had fallen and several people were falling out in the parking lot. So I think we'll pull the plug. But you just never know because weathermen aren't as accurate as they like to think they are. But Jesus was alluding to their science. That if we understand weather patterns, if we understand how present conditions are indications of future ones. And so they'll get on the the Doppler, you know, they'll show there's these conditions mounting and it's looking like 80% likelihood of what's to come. That's, That's how weather works. And so Jesus uses this as an illustration of spiritual conditions. He's saying that if we can understand spiritual conditions, the present condition, we can anticipate the future ones. But we've got to know His ways. We've got to become familiar with the ways of God so that we can look at what's going on now and anticipate. And in that way, we become a prophetic people. Not, not so much in the prophetic sense that you have a download, a vision, a dream. Those, that's all legit. We'll probably touch on some of that this weekend. But that's not, that's not the only way that we can be prophetic. One of the ways in which we can be prophetic is we become familiar with His ways. And we need to become attuned to spiritual atmosphere. What are the conditions in the air? I'm talking about in the immediate, the, a church service. What's God doing? We want to tune our, we want to learn that. We want to learn His ways. Because if we can learn His ways, we can cooperate with Him. There are a lot of people who experience what God is doing but they can't enter in and cooperate with it. God wants us to enter into it and cooperate with Him to, so that we know His ways. Well, He operates, we cooperate. We do it together. We're co-laborers. Or, you know, that's the old King James Version, collaborators with heaven. That's what God wants. He wants things with your fingerprints on it and His fingerprints on it. There's a unique expression of His kingdom that's supposed to come through you. That can't come through anyone else. But in order for that to happen, we've got to learn His ways. Because again, there's a lot of people that experience the weather. They don't understand the weather. They just are victims of it. Or they're you know, the recipients of a nice sunny day. They get to enjoy it, but they didn't know what was coming because they don't understand weather conditions. And so Jesus frames it up, this, this picture of meteorology as a picture of what He's looking for with us spiritually. God wants us to begin to learn the patterns of the Spirit. So that when certain things are happening, we can understand, okay, this is what's coming next. And in that way, we can be a prophetic people. There are people who are prophetic that are cessationists. But the reason, a cessationist is a person who believes that the gifts of the Spirit ceased with the death of the apostles. But they are prophetic in the sense that they become familiar with the Word of God and the ways of God, and you'll hear them talk about things that are coming as if they're a prophet or they're someone who believes in the gifts of the Spirit. They're accessing the prophetic through the Word rather than through the charismata. And so we need to understand that there's there's access to those things through the Word of God and knowing His ways. I've, I've just been stirred about this whole theme Uh, for quite some time now, that God longs to bring us into His ways. It says of the children of Israel that God showed them His works, but He showed Moses His ways. 
and he's juxtaposing Moses. Moses was different. Others saw what God did. Moses saw behind the curtains and knew why God did it. There was an intimacy with God that he understood what motivated God. He understood his ways. One of the great things about knowing someone's ways, if, if, you, know, if you knew where I work, I work at, at the church I pastor, and I always t- I'm a creature of habit. I take the same road every day. Matter of fact, what happens is I get on autopilot, and if I'm going somewhere else and I'm not thinking about it, I end up at the church. <laughs> you ever done that? I'll end up at the church or at Chick-fil-A where one of my kids works. It's not a bad place to end up, by the way. Because yeah, I get half off because my son works there. It's awesome. But, so I'll get on autopilot because that's just the, that's the path that I go. I've got neural pathways that dictate that physical pathway and I'll just get on autopilot. It's really a picture of how God works. God, David said in Psalm, or, yeah, Psalm 25, he said, God, show me your ways. There was a heart cry in David that he wanted to understand. God, what motivates you? What are the patterns of your behavior? You know, God is not as unpredictable as we tend to think He is. If you are intimate with Him, He's not unpredictable. Because there are things, there are patterns to God's behavior. And that's part of the meaning behind that whole thing of knowing God and His ways. Now, if you know me, I have a way that I go to work. Those are my ways. And if you know how, where I go, then you can get in the way and you can intercept me. You could stand in the middle of the road at about the time I'm going to work. Uh, I go to a prayer meeting in the morning. You could stand out in the road and intercept me because you know my ways. The same is true of God. When we know His ways, we can get in the way. Not, not as a barrier, but we can, we can intercept God in His activity. We can cooperate with Him. And God longs to bring us into His ways. He longs to share His heart with us. There are mysteries, there are uh, secrets. uh, Scripture refers to as the secrets of the kingdom, uh, the mysteries of the kingdom, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. There's different passages that refer to it in different ways. But it's, it's God wanting to bring us in. Let me back up and, and take another run at it from a different angle. As Pentecostals, most, I think most of us are. That's why you're, you come to a conference, Supernatural Church. If you're not, you're not into that, you probably wouldn't follow that title. Uh, as Pentecostals, we usually emphasize, when we talk about the baptism of the Spirit or the Spirit of God coming upon us, we talk about one facet of the kingdom and that is the power facet. And that's, that's a valid thing. Acts chapter 2. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That is a valid thing. But it's just not the whole thing. There are really three dimensions to the, the baptism of the Spirit we need to be aware of. Uh, Rich Mullins nailed it when he wrote his song, Wisdom, Power, and Love. Our God is an awesome God. There's the wisdom component, there's the love component, and there is the power component. Acts chapter 2 is the power component. And as Pentecostals, that's what we really emphasize. We emphasize this this wisdom component. I had a Bible school professor that was a holiness Pentecostal. So he was a little different stream. 
uh, holiness. So he would always talk about the Holy Spirit. He, that's how he would say it. The Holy Spirit. So he emphasized empowerment internally to overcome sin. Then the movement, I was a part of the Assemblies of God for many years. And what we always emphasized was external power for ministry. Both of those are true. So the power of the Spirit is to give us power on the inside. It's by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Romans 8 says. It's the power over sin. That's what the holiness people would emphasize. Then the Pentecostals, out of the Pentecostal movement, they tended to look more at the power component for ministry, for healing, for spiritual gifts to be made manifest. That's, that's all valid. What we need to really realize, however, is that there are other dimensions to this thing that are equally important. And one in which I think is coming to the forefront in this hour, and that's why I'm bringing it up. So we have the other two, the wisdom and love. The love component, this move of God in the last 25 years was a restoration of the love of God. My, my spiritual father went to be with the Lord uh, about two years ago now. And uh, when, the, when the, the Jesus people movement happened, he, he had a tremendous revival in his church uh, it was a Southern Baptist church. He became the vice president of the Southern Baptist movement. Took this church when it was about 200. It grew to, set, I think, 7,000. Tremendous move of God. They shut down all the strip clubs in, in their area in San Antonio. and Tremendous move of God. And, uh, he, but he made this comment. He said, we have, we've had a Jesus movement. Then there was the outpouring of the Spirit and the charismatic renewal. He said, we had a Spirit movement. He said, what we need is a father movement. And that came in the mid-90s. It was a, a baptism of the Father's love. In Toronto, it was called the Father's Blessing. It's not a coincidence. It manifested on Father's Day in Pensacola. And what people experienced was a baptism of the Father's love. And that's why there was such an emphasis on identity in this last move of God. Because the love of God defines you. It tells you who you are and establishes your value. And we need that. And the love of God, uh, it, and that comes by the Spirit. Romans 5. It's by the Spirit He sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. So that's that love dimension. That holy affection. And really there's, there's three elements to it. There's God's, God's love for us that we encounter. That we realize, man, I'm loved by God. But what does that do? It births a reciprocal response within us. Why? We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So the secret of our affection being ignited is seeing His affection for us. It's not something we try to white knuckle and try to do on our own. If you have a struggle loving God, if it's showing up in disobedience, if the, the deficit of God's love in your life is showing up in the place of in, in the form of disobedience, because Jesus very clearly said, if you love me, you will obey me. So if you're trying to obey him out of your own ability, you're going to come up short. What you need is an ignition of the, your, a love for him. But that comes out of a revelation of his love for you. So it all goes back to this taproot of God's holy affection for us. And when we see when we encounter how He feels about us, His view of us, it is a game changer. It will absolutely change your identity. And out of that, you'll begin to live differently. Obedience will begin to be established in your life. You'll get on. You cannot mature in your Christian walk until you are established in love. That's why Paul 
prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. He said, I pray that the power of the Spirit would come upon you. Man, that's good Pentecostal language. But he doesn't say for ministry. He said, I pray that the Spirit of God would come on you in great power so that you may know His love in Christ Jesus for all the saints. And then he goes on to say a very strange phrase, and that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. I, I, I. How do you know something that's beyond knowledge? What he's saying is, I want you to have a supernatural, in the Greek, it's a supernatural experience of love that is beyond your ability to study yourself into. It's not textbook theory, it's not ideas, it's an encounter. Because there is a place where you can, you bankrupt your mind to comprehend and you've come to the end of that. What you need is to step out of the theoretical into the experiential and you need to have a baptism of love. And you see this all down through history. Charles Finney was not the Charles Finney that we read about until he received a baptism of love. That's what changed him. He got such a baptism of love, he cried out and he said, God, stop or I will die. He said it was waves of liquid love were washing over me and gurglings that cannot be uttered came out of me. I think he got the baptism. Gurglings. Yeah, try that one. Put that in your, your flyer for your, on your website. Come and get hands laid on you for gurglings. But it's the love of God came on him and transformed him. And out of that does come that, that obedience, you know, the inward power. Part of that is that love. Matter of fact, uh, part of that external power. Because when you're flowing in the gifts of the Spirit, and many of you have experienced this, the way you know what God is doing is all of a sudden this affection just grow, uh, rises up within you and you just got to put your hand on someone. You got you to pray for them. You just follow love. You're, you're led by the compassion of the Lord and, and God follows that. Man, there's, there's this, uh, this release of power. And so we learn to walk in love, but we've got to be established in that. So we have this power component. We have this love component. And people that operate in power that aren't established in love are scary. Long term, that's a dangerous thing. Don't put a loaded bazooka in the hand of someone that isn't, doesn't love people. <laughs> and so we need that to be established in love. We need that power. But this other dimension that's so important is the wisdom component. One of the manifestations of the Spirit is that He comes to us as a Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Jesus said, it's better that I leave. I'm going to send one like unto myself. He will lead you into all truth. And so He comes as a Spirit of wisdom and revelation to teach us and instruct us. He's the voice behind us that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And so we see this supernatural power in Scripture. Paul operated in power. You know, many, many people, uh, Samson, the Spirit would come upon him. He'd operate in great power. We see this this supernatural love. John, uh, John the Beloved was known as the, po the Apostle of Love. The guy who was a bar brawler with his brother, the Sons of Thunder, James and John that wanted to clean out the bar. If someone rejected their message, they wanted to go duke it out with them. 
By the end of his life, he's like the Pillsbury Doughboy of the, of the kingdom, you know? <laughs> he's, he, he, you read his epistles, and he's like the apostle of love. It is all this flowery language because he had been... But remember, he's the one who referred to himself as what? The one whom Jesus loved. The love of God had totally defined him, redefined him. That wasn't an arrogant statement. At first reading, that might feel like, well, that's kind of arrogant. Who does he think he is? He didn't say, I'm the one who Jesus loved more than the rest. I'm, I'm the only one he loved. He just, every time he'd look in the mirror and he'd see himself, what he'd see is, oh, there he is. It's that one that Jesus loved. And that needs to be our experience. That needs to be the reality that we walk in because that is the truth. That God loves you. He loves you more deeply. He knows you more intimately, yet loves you more deeply than anyone. And when we really believe that, it transforms how, and we need to see ourselves through the lens of there, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. The one impacted by the love of God. It literally became his identity. The way he would identify himself. Who are you? I'm the one Jesus loved. So we have this, this dimension of love. But then we have this dimension of wisdom. Paul referred to himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to say it's verse 1. He said, consider, he said, refer to us in this way. And one of the titles he said, he said, stewards of the mystery. Oikos nomos. That's, that's the word steward. It, oikos is home, uh, household. Uh, and then nomos is, is like the law. Or the, it, it, it was someone who oversaw the household. Oikos nomos. He was a steward. He was, it was like Joseph to Potiphar and to Pharaoh. Joseph was Potiphar's oikos nomos. He was the steward of that house. And then he went to prison, became the steward of the prison. And then he, went, then he was elevated to the throne and became the steward over the whole nation. And Paul saw himself as one who was a steward of the mysteries. I believe this dimension of the Spirit, the wisdom of God, and it, it is one of the results of the baptism in the Spirit or a life in the Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit is simply the gateway. Jimmy Swaggart, I went to Jimmy Swaggart Bible College back in the 80s, and he used to have this little booklet called Baptism in the Spirit, Goal or Gateway. That's a good title. Because a lot of believers look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a goal. Well, I, I got it. My goal. I've got, you know. And it's like, well, I guess, I guess just ride the wave till Jesus comes. Now I, I attained the baptism. No, it's, it's, it's not a goal. It's a gateway into the Spirit-filled life. Where we begin to learn the life in the Spirit. Where all of a sudden, the, the, the equipment internally begins to turn on and we can be aware of the spiritual realm. And we can become that meteorologist spiritually. And we understand what God is doing. We learn His ways. We become a student. And we know what God is doing so that we can cooperate with what God is doing. And one of the manifestations of the Spirit coming upon us is He comes as a Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So that He can take us deeper and He can teach us and instruct us and we can become the answer to problems before they arise 
Jesus said at the end of his life to his disciples, at the end of his, his well, before he was resurrected, he's still alive. <laughs> uh, at the end of his ministry, earthly ministry, he said to his disciples, guys, there is so much more I wanted to give you. Man, I, I wanted to unload it on you guys. There's just so much. You can hear it in his heart. Understand, this is the heart of God. This is God in the flesh telling his disciples, there's so much more. It wasn't the, the reluctance wasn't on God's end. Okay? It wasn't like God was saying, well, there's some things I don't want to share with you. He longed to, but he said this. He said, but you can't bear it. Literally has the idea of you can't stand up under the weight of what I would want to show you. So then he said, but I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to lead you into all truth. He'll give you incrementally what I wished I could have just pulled up and dumped on you <laughs> in a moment. But you couldn't handle it. So one of the assignments of the Spirit of God in our life is to be a spirit of wisdom and revelation and to train us and walk through and teach us. And as many of, you know, probably everybody in this room has experienced it at different levels, but you, God will begin to deal with you about something. And all of a sudden you'll get in the car and turn on the radio and they're talking about that thing. And then you get to the office and you look up on the TV and they're talking about that same thing on TV. And then you pick up a book and someone brings it up and you can rest assured the spirit of wisdom and revelation is leading you and training you in what He wants you to do. But here's the problem. We can, we can enter into a spirit of wisdom and revelation on accident or on purpose. We can, we can either... Make it hard for God that He's got to, you know, really try to show us things, or we can posture our heart and turn towards Him and begin to ask for wisdom, ask for revelation. They who hunger and thirst shall be filled. God longs to show us. I came across this thing the other day. It was it was a number of years ago now. Uh, we, we had some friends into our church, Joel and Linda Budd. I don't know if anybody knows Joel and Linda out of Tulsa. And uh, Joel was up speaking, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly, and I just wrote down what he dictated to me. And uh, essentially it was this. He said, the, the answers you are longing for are available to you. I long to give them to you. But what you lack is the perseverance in going after them. He said, I can only give them to the soul that really... He went on to talk about this idea of that it's our pursuit that actually creates within us the value system that can steward the very thing He's wanting to give us. If God were to give it to us right when we ask, we wouldn't bear it. We wouldn't have the ability to bear it. We, because we're not instructed. Internal structure. We don't, we're not informed. We don't have the internal formation to handle the weight of that reality that God wants to release us into. So what does God do? He creates hunger. And I would propose to you that your hunger for something spiritually is in and of itself often an indication that God is already inviting you into it. The fact that you're even hungry for it is an indication that God is wanting to release it to you. And that hunger becomes a hook 
that He grabs our heart and begins to pull us through a process where we're pursuing Him, and that process does a work in us so that we're changed into the person that can steward it. And the release of that truth, that revelation, is not because God is hesitant to give it to us, because He's wanting to hold it to Himself. It's He's hesitant to give it to us because we can't handle it. He's preparing us. Let me, let me see if I can pull this up. I came across it the other day, and I th think I still have it pulled up. I want to just read this to you. It really did intrigue me when he said it to me. And uh, the only reason I can remember it, oh, here it is right here. Okay, this is what he told me. I, I don't think I have the date on it. I don't. Persistence is key to understanding. I forgot this part. That's why you've got to write things down when the Lord speaks to you. Amen? Okay, this is what he said. Persistence is key to understanding. Many get offended by living out of limited understanding, but refuse to press in for insight. We're frustrated. We're offended because our, we're frustrated in life. Things aren't going the way we want them to. But rather than assume God is good, and so there must be something I don't understand, because He's not going to... Everything is going to work out for my good because he's a good father and I'm his son. Rather than assume that, we get offended, but don't ask him to fill in the gaps. We judge him by our limited understanding. And then he said this. This is the part I quoted to you. The answers you are looking for are available to you if you will press in for them. Much of what you long to understand is too precious to be shared with the heart that has little interest. Your pursuit creates a value system that cherishes the find. The pursuit itself raises the value of the treasure. Buried treasure is more valuable than mere gold because of the expense of unearthing it. The market value raises with the story of the pursuit. The investment of unearthing it is folded into the value placed upon the treasure. It becomes part of the equation. What, a, what I took that to mean is that when you have, if you have a, uh, a shipwreck, and there's some rare Spanish, what are they called, doubloons? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, if it's part of this famous shipwreck, it becomes more valuable simply because it was part of that treasure. You can have the same doubloon or bullion from a, you know, that was just already on the market. It's not going to be as valuable, but the story is folded in. And that's the way we all operate. You, you know the most precious things you have in God are the things He spoke to you. And it's because the tr I, I look back over life and there are things that stand out that He's told me and showed me. And there was a crisis in my life that caused me to press in and, and God showed me something out of the crisis, out of the cry. I don't even remember the crisis anymore. I don't remember what I was going through. doesn't even matter. All I remember is the treasure I got out of it. That, that's, that's how we all are. And so God longs to share things with us, but we've got to understand, I've probably shared this in Burlington sometime before, so part, you know, just forgive me if I uh, go over the material again, but there, it's, it's important we understand there is wisdom available to us. God longs to give it to you. He longs. Secrets bind the hearts of lovers together. Secrets bind hearts together. 
And God longs to give you His secrets to draw you in. He longs to share those things with you. Now, there are three levels of wisdom that are, are, are revealed in Scripture. There, okay, and, and it's reflected in Jesus' teaching that a lot of people look at as prayer, but I would propose to you it's not, it wasn't prayer, it was specifically about wisdom. In the Beatitudes where Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. Remember that? Well, He's already talked about prayer in the Beatitudes, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's already said, when you pray. I don't think it's so much about intercession as much as it is about contending for wisdom and revelation. Because he says, ask, seek, and knock. Those are, those are ascend, that's an ascending progression. Knocking takes more effort, or uh, seeking takes more effort than asking, and knocking takes more effort than seeking. And the effort is indicative of the value of what you'll get out of it. There, James chapter 1 says this, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. That's the first level. There is the low-lying fruit of the kingdom. If you want to know something, ask. And God will release it to you. And you'll have wisdom. And He says He'll give it to you and it upbraideth not. He's not going to get on your case for it. He's not going to be begrudging of it. There's that level of wisdom that if we'll just ask, God will give it to us. And so God is inviting us into this process and He's saying, just ask me and I'll give it to you. But there's a more valuable wisdom beyond the mere asking wisdom. It's low-lying fruit. It's available to anybody that asks. The second level of wisdom is seek and ye shall find. Proverbs chapter 2 talks about this. Proverbs 2 says, seek for wisdom, cry out for understanding, Seek for it as hidden treasure. So, the seeking, we have to seek for it. Why? He, it says, Proverbs 2, it's hidden. It's hidden. Why is it hidden? Because it's valuable. It's hidden treasure. And that's that type of wisdom that God doesn't just give. There's some wisdom that God will just give you when you ask it. It's important, but it's not as valuable as the type that there, it's a process, not an event where God takes you into a season and you're seeking and you're unearthing these treasures and God longs to give them to you. That is Proverbs chapter 2. But there's another level of wisdom you see in Scripture. And that is the knock and the door shall be opened to you. Literally in the Greek, it's knock and keep on knocking. It is clearly a process of pounding on the door. Why do we have to knock? Because it's behind lock and key. Precisely because of how valuable it is. And we see this level of wisdom in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this. He says this type of wisdom, he said it's unsearchable wisdom is the way a lot of translations say it. The unsearchable wisdom. And then it goes on to say it's hidden within God Himself. So this level of wisdom, it's unsearchable. That word means there's no tracks. You, you look at it and you could overlook it. You could look right at it and not see it until God reveals it to you. The only way to get into that type of wisdom is God has to open the eyes of your understanding and the knowledge of Him. And then when He shows you that, then you can enter into that. And this level of wisdom is the game changer wisdom. Okay? This is, this is, the, ver this is the valuable wisdom. Now, those of you that have studied theology, 
uh, you know, in church history. This it sounds dangerously like Gnosticism, where it's the secret wisdom and people got arrogant about knowing that. I'm telling you, that is the counterfeit because to get into this wisdom, it will humble you. You're not going to touch this. God gives grace to the humble. He's not going to show it to us if we're arrogant about those things. It's, it's, there's, you know, this thing, oh, well, we have the answers. No, by the time you break into that, it's like, thank you, Jesus. And, uh, but God longs to give that type of wisdom to His children. Now, it's interesting, at Ephesians chapter 3, it says this type of wisdom is hidden within God Himself. The heart of God is the vault in which those treasures are hidden. Now, let me tell you something real troubling. These first two types of wisdom, the occult can get you into those types of wisdom. Worldly, worldly teaching can get you into the first level. The occult can get you into the second level. I know people that have gotten into the occult and they know more about spiritual meteorology, if you will, than most believers. They are very in tune with the environment because they have gone after revelation and although God won't give you revelation that you can't handle, the enemy is more than willing to. Matter of fact, he loves to give you things you can't handle to destroy your life. And the occult is all about forbidden knowledge. Because the enemy who was kicked out of heaven, when he left, the one thing he did take with him is the trade secrets of heaven. He understands how the spiritual realm works. And some people get in, they, they begin to be hungry for knowledge and they end up getting into occult stuff. And there are believers who get, end up playing with that and don't even realize it. In James chapter 3, th this, is, this is a disturbing passage. James chapter 3. Uh, and matter of fact, maybe we ought to do a session on this. We'll see. Uh, James 3, he, he said, okay, it starts out with this. It says, uh, who is understanding among you? No, it says, uh, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brethren, because we who teach should be judged more strictly. Remember that? And then he says, no man is ever at, not at fault in anything he says. The tongue is an unruly member. Uh, it sets great forests on fire. and all the, you know, It's talking about the tongue is unruly and no man can tame the tongue. Uh, and then it talks about the heart. Uh, and it's like the rudder of a ship. It will steer, though a small organ, it'll... You know, the great ship will be steered by that wherever the pilot wants to go. The picture is the pilot is the heart. The ship is your life and your tongue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the pilot will direct the tongue and set the course of your life. And so then he's talking about all this. And then he, he says in like verse 13, he says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Remember, we're talking about wisdom now. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by the deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. Essentially what he's saying, because you remember the context is verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers. He's talking about people that aspire to ministry, especially teaching in this context, but it, it applies to all ministry. He said, people that aspire to that, don't, don't aspire, let God call you. Because it's not worth it if you get in it for the wrong motives. And then he, so in verse 13 when he says, who's wise in understanding? What he's saying is, if you really have something to share as a teacher, 
Let's see you walk it before you talk it. That's what he's saying. Let's see the deeds that come from the humility that comes from wisdom. He's saying, let, let me sit, let, bear some fruit in your own life before you start talking about it. And then he goes on, he says, but he talks about worldly wisdom. He said, such wisdom, he says, if you have bitter envy or selfish ambition in your heart, in other words, if you're wanting to be a teacher for the wrong reasons, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And then he says this, such wisdom does not come from above, but is worldly, unspiritual, and of the devil. There is a digression that we can open ourselves up to in our pursuit of wisdom if we pursue it with the wrong motives. It start, that type of wisdom, it's worldly. The, the, this is the source. It's not necessarily evil. Worldly wisdom is not necessarily evil. It's just not sufficient to get us where we need to go. But then he says it's unspiritual. The Greek word there is would be better translated soulish. It finds its origin in the human soul, not in the court of heaven. It's in the human soul. Now, let me just pause here. People that get into the prophetic can tap into that same flow where they prophesy their own wisdom out of their own soul, but that becomes the door where it says it's worldly, unspiritual, or soulish, and demonic. Where people begin to operate out of the demonic and don't even know it. And the reason is because of their motives. It says, if you have bitter envy or selfish ambition in your heart, that is the key. If that's going on in your heart, don't go after wisdom. Don't start fasting and praying and ignore that. I remember hearing Mike Bickle years ago. He said, People that, have, that live in stubborn sin but begin to fast and pray and go after spiritual things, he said, I have never seen such complex, tangled, the, the, the complexity of their deception that they get into. When they reject the truth but keep going after through fasting and prayer, going after revelation, they open themselves to the demonic. Because we... It, it, we, we end up opening ourselves because of our motives. The, 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 I hope this is making sense. The, the flip side of this. So, James says, if you have selfish ambition or bitter envy in your heart, don't deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above. That's a warning, right? Jesus was asked in John 7, where did you get such wisdom? By the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they said, where did you get this insight, Jesus? And when Jesus answered them, Jesus was a master at this. He would answer a question, and they would think, you didn't answer my question. But he really did. Jesus said, well, I came not to please myself, but the one who sent me. And I guarantee you, they were thinking, what? We're not asking your motives. We want to know your source. We could care less about your motives. But Jesus was giving them a key to the kingdom. My motive is my source. The, the reason, what, is it, what did He say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
See, in James, he juxtaposes this selfish ambition over against heart purity. It, so when it says, such wisdom does not come from above, is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you find it, you have disorder and every evil practice. So he tells us the motive, where it, the source, and the result. All in those little three ver- few verses. Then he introduces the alternative, the kingdom of heaven. He says this, but the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure. Heart purity is the threshold to the wisdom of God. Again, Jesus said it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see. You want your eyes open? You want to see revelation? You want to have wisdom from above? You want to access the secrets of the kingdom? Purify your heart, you double-minded is what James would tell us. So James says the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving. Uh, I, I want to say then it's a, like something insincere. And then he says this, for peacemakers, so that's the person, they become a peacemaker. And, and, and it's interesting, when James says purity and peacemaking, if you go back to the Beatitudes, that's the order. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because being a peacemaker flows directly out of being pure in heart. Why? Because you can't broker deals if you come with hidden agendas. You can't be the peacemaker. You can't sit down and broker peace between two people if you've got your own selfish ambition. But if we can get to the point where our cry is, Jesus, I am zealously, jealously after your purposes. I pray this prayer all the time. God, and I pray it out loud for our church. (laughs) I was praying it yesterday in a prayer meeting. God, we side with you against us. We side against ourselves. Do whatever you have to do to get us where we need to be. We need to purify our hearts and ask the Lord, God, cleanse that stuff. Because those hidden agendas will skew our view and open us up to a line of reasoning that is not from above. We'll read things wrong. We'll we'll see things wrong. But if we can get to the place where our heart is pure, when James says this, he says, later on in that passage, going into chapter 4, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is a key there. I want you to hear what he's saying. The problem is you're double-minded. The cure is purity of heart. So, double-mindedness is another way of saying you have selfish ambition. So what does that mean? Double-minded. The Greek word is daisuke. It means dual-souled. And when I looked up the meaning of that, I could sadly really, really relate with it. What it is, is it's like two motivations. It's that thing that says, God, I want you to be glorified. So that I can be known. Yeah. How many times have I prayed for revival at our church so we would be on the map? That same book of James. James is hardcore, man. He doesn't pull punches. He said, when you ask for wrong motives, you do not receive what you ask for. So here's the thing. Prayer is a process by which God purifies our heart so He can finally release the request that He put within us in the first place. 
He's wanting to release those things, but he's got to clean us up first. Because if he releases the answer to people who aren't prepared, we won't bear up under it. We'll end up doing more damage. Again, like putting a bazooka in the hand of a person that hates people. Not a good plan. And so, this thing of purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, let's go back to what James says. So, remember, he said, okay, there's wisdom that does not come from above. He's talking about the source. Then he says, uh, he, he talks about the result. He said, if you have selfish ambition and bitter envy in your heart, there's the motive. The source is, it's not from heaven, it's from the earth, soul, and demonic. And then the result is disorder in every evil practice, right? So we have that little outline. Motive, source, results. Then he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What he's saying is if God can get us to the point where our heart is pure, our prayers are pure, our desires, when we ask Him for wisdom, it's for the right reasons. And when we ask Him and He reveals those things to us, we, then we qualify to be a peacemaker. We literally carry the peace of heaven because there's not a war inside of us. I'm not vying for God's kingdom, but I want some for myself. He burns that out of us to where just, Lord, we just want You. We just want what You want. We become a peacemaker who then sows into an environment of peace that we ourselves create. He says, peacemakers who sow into peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So really what James is giving us is two models of ministry. Two types of teachers, two different motivations, two different sources, and two completely different results. One, disorder and every evil practice. And the other, a harvest of righteousness. And the real difference between those two is what's causing us to cry out for it. That's why James, out of that, that's where James began to say, he said, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He said, God jealously, uh, God is jealous. Uh, I forget how he says it. Let's look that up, James chapter 4. And he says, he says this, he says, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know that word proud, years ago I looked it up. In the Greek, it's a compound word. And here, what, this is what it means. It's two words, to shine, and the other is above the rest. So pride, it's that desire that we want to stand out, we want to shine above everyone else. We're, it's not talking about wanting to be all that God called you to be for His glory. It's that thing that drives us for significance in an unhealthy way. That's, that's what selfish ambition is. And so we've got to go to war against this and confront that thing in our heart and be honest about it before the throne of God so God can remove that so that He can begin to give us the wisdom that is so valuable to us. So let, let's look at what he says here. Uh, is it verse 5? Oh, I've got all these ads coming up here. Verse, okay, yeah, 
4 or 5. Yeah, or, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? God is zealous and jealous over what He's put within you. And if we will cooperate with Him, I love that song. I, he, he will not relent until He has it all. Man, we need to pray that. God, don't relent until you have every little patch of that stuff out of me. Go after that. We can actually... Let me put it this way. When you look at what James says here, you can have... I'll say it this way. James talks about the motive. He talks about the results. He talks about the source. You know what he never talks about? The content. Never mentions it. You can have two people preach the same content and have two completely different harvests. You can preach truth with the wrong motive and have a wrong result. Remember I said this thing shows up under other gifts as well? You know, James is talking about teaching. Let me show it to you in the prophetic. Acts 16, I believe it is. Paul goes to Philippi. He goes to Philippi. It's really a great lesson on, on uh, it's, a, it's a great study on apostolic teams going in and creating breakthrough in a, in a city. They, they go in by revelation and uh, through a prophetic dream, they go to the city, and it says that they go, to, they go to pray at the gates. They go through the gate to pray. They run into this lady, Lydia, leader to the Lord. She said, if you believe I'm really a believer, if you think your, your ministry really worked on me, then come stay at my house. And so they do. And so they, but you know how they continue? Every day they're going through the gate to prayer. I don't believe it's insignificant that they're going through the gate. That is significant. That they're, and so they found their person of peace in the city. Somebody that owns land and has stake to claim there. Now, they're, so they're contending. And after a few days, they pick up this stray, so to speak, a young slave girl with what our modern translations say is a spirit of divination. Now, some of you know, and it's a strange thing, that in the Greek, it's a spirit of python. It's like, what in the world's that about, you know? The animal kingdom and the spirit? Is there a rhino spirit? You know, giraffe spirit? What it's referring to, if you look on a map, up to the northwest, there's a place called Delphi. And in Delphi, there was this huge temple to Apollo. Some of you have heard about it, some of the mythology around that. Remember Apollos? The mythology was that Apollos wrestled this giant snake and he slayed the snake and he put its carcass in this mountain. And they built this temple. It was one of the wonders of the world at the time. And so they built this. And people, it was a bank. And it was also the headquarters of a worldwide false prophetic cult. People would come from all over the world. And there were these girls called Apithia. And they, would, they were the prophetesses. And they would take them up in this room. There was... Uh, there was uh, an odor that came out of the floor, these fissures in the, in the stone. And some thought it was the rotting carcass of the giant snake and that they would bring, set her into a, 
uh, state that she would prophesy. And these priests would write down their prophecies, and people would come from all over the world to get these prophetic words. So when Paul is rebuking a spirit of Python, that's not just some weird, you know, kind of random, let's, let's call it something. It really is a reference to this regional spirit, this false prophetic movement that was up to the northwest. And she was operating under this spirit. She was, what, what our modern translation calls spirit of divination was a spirit of python. It was the false prophetic. And people, she made a lot of money for her slave owners because she would give these false prophetic words. But here's the thing. They were false because of their source, not because of their content. Because you listen to what they said over, over Paul and the, and the apostolic team. She would follow them around day after day and say, these men are sent from God. They will send you the way to life. They will show you the way to life. That's all true. That's good PR if it wasn't her. It wasn't what she was saying that was wrong. It was why she was saying it. I, I'm sure I've, I, I, I have this feeling I've talked about this here before. So, but let me tell you a little story. We, we, uh, there was a gal. Uh, I happened to have known her for many years. And uh, she had come to our church and uh, she's a, just a precious soul, but she was troubled. And at our church, we, we have a big altar area, and people come up front to worship, and I tease, call it a mosh pit, you know. People come up to worship up front, and a lot of people are dancing and, you know, doing prophetic acts or laying down and all that stuff, and, and that's fine. I, I love it. She would come up, and she was doing the same thing everyone else was doing. Well, not everyone, but other people were doing she was dancing and it would bug me it just bugged me and then I'd repent God forgive me so judgmental Lord I'm jerk you know Lord bless her and I, but it would just it would like bug me now in Acts 19 or Acts 16 it says of Paul it says he was troubled it was irritated he was I don't remember the exact term he was he was being grieved. That, that's a good That's what I was feeling. I was repentant of being grieved. But it was really my discernment going off. My spidey sense was waking up and I didn't know it. And uh, I was like, oh. And then I'd repent, God, forgive me. And one morning, we're worshiping and she's doing that. And all of a sudden, this is the thought that came in my mind. It's the spirit of Python. It's the counterfeit trying to join itself to the legitimate to discredit the real. That is the goal of the false prophetic. That's the goal of the false teaching. That's the goal of these false sources that try to enroll themselves into the church. They, what they want to do is they want to join themselves to the legitimate to discredit it. Years earlier, we, we'd, it was like 2005, we just moved into this building that we had built, and it was smaller then, but we, we just moved in there, and we hit this this season of healing and just the high praise, it was intense. It was glorious. And we would be in high praise and people would be getting healed. And I mean, the church was growing and people were getting saved and it was glorious. And in the midst of it, there was this one lady would stand on the edge of the balcony and go, this high pit, it was like, it just, it would like make your hair stand up. It was like across the grain. So I asked her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be real nice and pastoral. 
Yeah, so what I wanted to say, what the heck was that, woman? You know? But instead I said, ah, so what is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you did, you know? Um, what, what's, what, and she said, well, that's just the way I respond when the Spirit of God comes on me. And I'm, I'm not a controlling person. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, if I don't have light on it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of hold off till I do. So I was like, ah, man, I don't know, you know? So, man, we're a couple weeks later, we're, I mean, it's raw power in the atmosphere. I mean, unbelievers were coming in and saying, oh my God, God lives here, you know? And I was like, and even people that loved it would be like, I love this, but that is so weird. And they would leave. I could feel it. Like it was turning people out. Like, that's creepy. Because there was an added dimension beyond her voice. There was something else going on there. So I just told her, I said, if that's how you respond to the Spirit of God, that's okay, do that at home. But at church, it's freaking people out, so don't do that. To which she told me, Ichabod, God's no longer here, and she left the church. And What I wanted to say is don't let the door hit you on the way out. But I didn't, because I'm being very pastoral, okay? And uh, she left. What I didn't realize, so... Speed forward a couple years later, I'm talking. Some of you know Paul Backhouse? Paul Backhouse calls me. He said, hey, Dave, you ever listen to Joel Budd, the guy that was preaching for us when he spoke that to me I started out with tonight? He said, you ever listen to Joel Budd's stuff on Python? I said, no. He said, he went, he went up to Toronto. He was pastoring a church of about 1,000 people. He, he took it over. It was about 12 people. Grew it to 1,000 in Tulsa. Went to Toronto, got his world rocked, and went through deliverance from Spirit of Python. As a pastor, Joel Budd, he shares this openly. Joel's a man of God. And so he said, I, as I was going through deliverance, I heard this. So Paul's telling me on the phone, I'm like, oh my goodness. I was. I couldn't believe it. And uh, he said, I came back to our church. And when I began to deal with that, he said, in service, he began to rebuke that thing, and people began to make that sound as they went through deliverance. I'm like, oh my. So that was years earlier. So now we're dealing with this lady. She's not, she's not going, ee! but it felt that way when she would dance. It's just like, against. so I, I felt this thing of what came in my mind is that is Python, the counterfeit trying to join itself to the legitimate to discredit the real. So I just went up to her and I tapped her on the shoulder. I said, hey, you know I love you. But I'm going to ask you to go sit at your seat. I don't want you coming up front to worship anymore until we can talk. We need to have an appointment and we're going to talk, okay? You know, I, I want you here. I'm not trying to run you off, okay? Okay, Pastor, that's good. The next week, she didn't call, but she came right up to the front. She would dance up there you know, and do her thing. So I went over, I said, hey, Remember, I wanted you to call me. I told you, I said, stay in your seat. I need you to go back to your seat. Well, just go back to your seat. And make it, I will, I will. So the next week, she moved out of her seat right to the edge of the aisle and does her thing. And I said, listen to me. <laughs> I'm starting to get irritated because now I can see what's going on. And uh, long story, tragic story short, she left the church. This lady who had been in the church for years, raised her kids in the church, Married, uh, had adult children, grandchildren. Ended up, her marriage fell apart. She ended up a homeless woman that went on meth. I mean, 
If she did drugs, she may have done them 40 to 45 years earlier. But hadn't done them in decades. She's been, she'd been a part of church for decades. But there was something going on in her life that she wasn't willing to deal with. I'm telling you that uh, revival and the moving of the Spirit is a dangerous thing if you harbor sin in your heart. Because you, you get in an environment where you're opening yourself up in passion. You're wanting to see these things. You're, you're joining in on fasting and prayer. But the purpose of fasting and prayer is not to change God. It's to change us. We're not trying to talk to God, God into something He's hesitant to do. When Daniel went on the original 21-day fast, the original Daniel fast, day 21, an angel shows up, halos bent, wings bent. He's like, well, I was fighting for 21. I started out the day you started praying, Dan. But I had to fight with the Prince of Persia. And, you know, Michael had to come and help me get through. <laughs> the, hesita- the, the hindrance to his prayers wasn't from God. God wasn't up there. A couple more days. All right, uncle, I'll give you. You're, you're showing your persistence. The day he started praying. Uh, this is a side issue, but we have a problem in the church that we, some people say, well, everything's a demon to some of these people. To the vast majority, they don't have a demonology as part of their theology. So they struggle when things are happening. Their only alternative is either God's the problem or I'm the problem. When there's another stool, another leg on this stool, not another stool on this leg, there's another leg on this stool, and that is the demonic. There is opposition. We are at war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. And if we don't have a theology for that, then what we do is we get offended with God over something He's not doing that the enemy is actually doing, or we aid and abet the enemy by taking on ourself and giving Him cover. And so we've got to realize there's a battle here that we're in, and we've got to have that as part of our theology to navigate these things. And so this whole thing of going after God as the Spirit of God begins to move, I firmly believe that God wants to give an outpouring of wisdom. There is fresh wisdom from heaven. The wisdom of God, the mysteries of God, are the very things that trigger us into new seasons. And this is a new season in the body of Christ. And you see this happen again and again. The prophetic rises at the threshold of new seasons. Because we need greater clarity. But we also need to make sure that our hearts are pure. Because if you get with a company of people and you start fasting and praying and going after it and crying out for it, but you are unwilling to deal with your own heart, you can open yourself to things that become dangerous. And we don't, we don't want to allow that stuff in our midst. Because what starts out as worldly, if God's not talking, we don't want to manufacture it out of worldly wisdom. Because if we do, if out of this desire to shine above the rest, we manufacture something, then it'll quickly we begin to, uh, begin to prophesy of our own soul and it becomes demonic. There becomes a demonic element to that thing that begins to exert itself. And it may very well be that what you are saying is true. It's just not right and good. Paul rebuked that girl. And he, he shut that thing down. It was, there were days he was irritated. He, 
I, I remember reading a Pentecostal commentary, and he said, there, there, well, no, it was, it was a Facebook feed, a bunch of preachers. I'm on this one group where a bunch of preachers, I never comment, but I read through their comments. And uh, they were saying, well, the reason, Paul, the reason Paul didn't rebuke it right away is it wasn't time yet. No, we, we have this Catholic view of Paul that he, like he's this saint that knew everything. Paul's just like us. He's trying to dial in. What's the deal? It irritated him. It bugged him when she was doing that, but he couldn't put his finger on it. And then finally, one day he realized, he turned around, and when he realized, he rebuked it and said, get out of her. And she lost her gift. And her slave owners were mad, and it resulted in a riot. And Paul left, beaten, out of, you know, out of jail, beaten, but a church was established. And they had breakthrough because they dealt with the principality over that city called Python. And something was broken into this thing, the, you know, whether it's Python and the prophetic or you know, teaching with wrong motives, bottom line is this. Man, God wants to use us. He really does. God wants to... He's put stuff in you He wants to release out of you. He, there are fresh anointings that He wants to give us. But God is too good a Father to release the wisdom we need until we can handle it. And some of what keeps us from it is the, our, own, our own heart. And so we just need to be very honest with Him and say, God, purify my heart. Lord, I'm asking You, shine Your light on this. I want to deal with this. We need people that are anointed from God that have wisdom, power, and love in this hour. I tell you what, let me close with the verse that I was going to preach on. Matthew, I want to say it's chapter 10. Remember where it talks about John the Baptist and it said, Jesus said this, He said, from the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The NIV translates it this way. From the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. I personally believe that's a better translation. Understand what he's saying. From the time of John the Baptist, there was a beginning of this forceful advancement. And it was still continuing up until the time that Jesus spoke. He, what he wasn't saying is the kingdom of heaven is always forcefully advancing. And forceful men always lay hold of it. He said there, he's insinuating that there was a season that began with John of forceful advancement. And you could make a strong case looking at human history there are seasons where the kingdom forcefully advances and others that it doesn't so much. But when God is on the move, and it was triggered by a man named John, from the time of John the Baptist until now, he said there's, there's a forceful move going on, and he said, and forceful men will lay hold of it. What he's saying is this, when there's a move of God, and, and I'm, I believe we're in one, I believe we're on the front end of a fresh move. Finally. Hallelujah. And there are a lot of people that will stand on the side and watch it go by. They prayed for it and they think, man, this is amazing. There's people that will enjoy the weather, but they can't anticipate it. They just experience whatever happens. They're like a little stick that flows down the stream. The water 
pushes them whatever way they want. Whatever way it wants. They just experience life. They don't shape it. But there's others that will forcefully lay hold of it and say, God, if you're moving in my day, I want in. I've got to get in on this thing. I want, I want to stake my claim. I, want, I, don't, I don't want to live and tell my grandbabies. I remember the move of God in 2023. It was really neat. I watched a lot happen. I want to push all my chips in the middle of the table. and I want to be all in. I want to, I want to be in the thick of it. I want God to spend me well. And if that's going to happen, we've got to, we've got to purify our hearts. On the front end of this, on this, this conference this weekend, I want us to pray a prayer. I want to ask God to purify our hearts. I don't think it's a coincidence that out at Asbury, that it's a, a, a revival that was kick-started by repentance. I believe there's a heart purity that's going to come with this move. The last move, and I alluded to this, the last move was the Father's love came with great power, signs and wonders, and encounters were emphasized. I believe there's a counterbalance that's going to bring us back into balance. Not that these are not valuable, they are essential. But these, without what God's about to send, can cause problems. This next move, rather than power, great authority is going to begin to fall on the church. But before God can restore authority to the church, there has to be not just the love of God, but the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is going to have to be restored to the church. And when that fear comes, the front end of that thing is deep repentance. There's this tension in the Spirit between the love of God and the fear of God. Paul said, uh, what was it, Acts 9, Luke said, the church grew in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, gave, he gave the two great motivators of his ministry. He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Two verses later, he said, the love of Christ constrains me. There's this tension between the two. And we need them both. And I believe the other thing that this is going to result in, not just the, the fear of the Lord, which will enable Him to entrust us with great authority, but I believe there's going to be a, a, a greater value for the Word of God. Not just encounters, but people are going to begin to value the Scriptures. And there, I believe there's going to rise a teaching, revelation, wisdom movement out of the Word. And we want to prepare ourselves. We want to be good meteorologists. And we sense what's going on in the atmosphere. And we feel, okay, red at night, sailor's delight. The time and the sign tell me what's coming next. And I want to be prepared when it arrives. I want my heart to be able to receive this next move. I don't want to, I don't want to be a person that sits in a service in the terror of the Lord. I want to deal with it on the front end. I want to, Lord, purify our hearts. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's just ask the Lord to purify our hearts for a moment. here. You know, James does say this. He says, you purify your heart. It's not that we just passively let, you know, say, God, would you do? No, God won't do your responsibility and you can't do his. And so there's an element of this that we, we admit to the Lord. God, there's this, this stuff in me. 
I wrote this down this morning, and it was for me. Revival, the purpose of revival is not merely to grow your church. Every pastor wants to see their church grow. And a lot of that can be really good motives. That can be completely pure motives. But there can also be impure motives. And I'm, I'm, I'm digging through my heart and just saying, God, I want on the front end, I want all this out, Lord. And if there's any impurity there, Lord, go after it. The Lord asked me years ago, He said, Dave, you, you fast and pray and cry out for revival. What if the way I answer your prayer is I visit the Reformed Cessationist Church across the street and no one knows you prayed, but you prayed in. Are you okay with that? Do you really want revival? Well, that kind of kicks some things to the surface. So Father, we're asking this afternoon, Lord, and the, Lord, as we stand on the threshold of this weekend and this, this short gathering time, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that You would just descend on us and begin to do a deep work in our heart, Lord. Lord, we don't boast about it, and we won't deny the truth. Lord, we're asking that You purify the wrong motives within us, Lord. God, there are things we don't even know about ourselves until You tell us. So, Holy Spirit, come and Father us well. Sift through these things. Lord, we're asking that we would be a prepared people ready to receive what You're about to do. Hallelujah. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank You, Lord. Hallelujah. Jade, could you lead us in a song? Just whatever I mean, you, you can come up, or you can just lead from where you're at. Whatever you feel, whatever you feel like. But could you just lead us in a song, just of consecration, whatever's on your heart? Father, we ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Oh, Lord. Lord, we want to see You for who You are. Lord, You are fascinating. Lord, we ask that You would reveal facets of Your nature that would capture our heart afresh. Lord, that You'd deliver us from every distraction by a revelation of who You are. Oh, God. Lord, we pray for Burlington in this surrounding area. God, we're asking that You would descend upon this community. Lord, that I'm reminded of Charles Finney and in his autobiography, he, he had this phrase that just so gripped me. As revival would hit these communities, he said something to the effect of, a pervading conviction registered upon the public conscience. Where men would no longer curse in the streets because the fear of the Lord began to descend. Lord, register a pervading conviction upon the public conscience and begin with us, Lord. Oh, Jesus. 
Lord, we want to see You for who You are. Lord, whatever You have to do to position us right. God, take the scales from our eyes. Lord, those areas where we're darkened in our understanding, let the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ Jesus be shed abroad in our hearts. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Pastor.